right, good evening, everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2? Romans chapter 2. Every week I say the same things to help the new folks get up to speed here, but we are still working on the first main section of the book of Romans. It's a section that falls under the heading of condemnation because in it Paul wants to prove that the whole human race apart from Jesus Christ is condemned by God, which means at one point he will, listen, he will judge this world. He's going to judge this world. And I believe that the uh, basis for the divine judgment he will bring is given by Paul in the first 16 verses of Romans 2, where he shares six principles that become the basis on which God will judge all people. First one is knowledge, then truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motives. Now we've already looked at the first three, and we are working our way through the fourth one, deeds, which we'll finish tonight. But um, let's read verses 5 to 6. But in accordance with your hardness and the, your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now, if you're new with us, please hear me out, because I'm going to say some things that you might jump on as heretical. Just hear me out. In both the Old and New Testaments, we're told that God will judge people on the basis of their deeds, their works, both good and bad. Now, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, the works or the deeds uh, aren't a condition for attaining salvation. They are the evidence of a person having salvation. Again, they become the litmus test when it comes to true saving faith. We can't see true faith buried in your heart, planted there. The only way we know, and you know it's really there, is by what comes out of your life. I remember when I first got saved. Uh, boy, got a lot of work to do in my life, but almost instantly, my attitude started to change. I knew I couldn't do some of the things I was doing. It was almost immediate. And of course, other things took a little while longer, but the idea is that the, the deeds are not, we're not saying that they earn you salvation, but we're saying, and the Bible teaches that they are an evidence of your salvation. That how do you know you're really saved? How do you know that you really got saving faith in your heart? Well, as Jesus said in Matthew 12, you will know the truth from the false by the fruit produced in their lives. And so Paul in Romans 2 verse 6 is saying that God will judge us not on the basis of what we say, what we profess, but on the basis of how we live, what's produced in our lives. Because again, Titus chapter 1 verse 16, Paul said, Many profess to know God, but by their lifestyle, they deny Him. They're not living for Him at all. There's no fruit, right? And that's what we've been keying in on. Now, as we said last time, people say, well, I've got fruit. I've got works. I know I'm saved. Why do you say that? I go to church. I pray the rosary. I light candles. I'm a deacon. Certainly, I'm right with God. Well, actually, God never lists those things. It's what He's looking for in the way of deeds, to substantiate whether your faith is genuine or not. Going to church, being baptized, even being a deacon isn't uh, the deeds God is looking for to determine whether a person is a true believer in Jesus Christ or not. So what is? What is he looking for? Well, uh, we don't have to guess because in verses 7 to 10, Paul examines the deeds that distinguish a true believer in Jesus from those who are, you know, phony false believers in Christ. Now, we looked at the marks of a true believer last week. Let's read verse 7 again. Eternal life. So he's talking about those who are saved, marks of a true believer. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Four things that prove are, are the marks of a person who is truly saved. Marks of a true believer. First of all, they continue patiently in good works. Or in other words, they walk with Jesus day after day, week after week, year after year. They're not a flash in the pan. 
on fire for a few weeks or a couple months, and then all of a sudden, where are they? Oh, they're on Facebook partying again. You see, a true Christian can backslide, but a true Christian will come back. Because the pattern of their life, if their life has been changed, if they're really saved, the Spirit of God is inside them, made them a new creation. Yeah, they're still wrestling with the old nature. Galatians 5, right? The flesh wars against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These two are constantly fighting with one another for dominance. Okay, we get that. It's spiritual warfare. But there has to be a struggle. If there's a struggle that indicates you have a new nature alongside the old nature. Somebody asked Spurgeon that very question. How do I know I'm saved? I, I, I'm always wrestling with sin. And, and often I, I lose the match and give in to the sin. I, I must not be saved. I think it was Spurgeon said, dead men don't wrestle. If you're wrestling, it indicates something new is inside you, the Holy Spirit. Because I'll tell you what, before I got saved, I wasn't wrestling with nothing. Just doing whatever the flesh wanted. Right? Okay. So, the marks of a true believer. Patient, continuance in doing good. Number two, they seek for glory, but not their own glory. They now live for the glory of God. And we talked about all these last week. I'm just touching on it. Number three, they seek for honor, but not the honor that comes from men. The honor ultimately that comes from God when we stand before the Lord, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in what I gave you to do on the earth. Now enter into the joy of your Lord, the kingdom. And number four, they seek for immortality. In other words, this is no longer their home, this life, this world. They now see themselves as pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land as they work their way towards their true home in heaven. They're living for the Lord. Their minds are set on things above, not on things on the earth. They're no longer laying up for themselves treasures on the earth. They're now laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. All right, these are the marks of a true believer. And I'm sure there's others, but this is what Paul identifies right here. Now, that brings us this evening to the marks of of a false believer, the, a false believer, verse 8, well, back up to verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. The, these are the saved, the righteous. Verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, well, what's coming for them? Indignation, wrath, judgment, tribulation, and anguish on every, si on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. The first mark of a phony or counterfeit Christian is that he or she is not seeking, listen, the glory of God, the honor of God, the will of God on a daily basis, but is seeking after their own glory, their own honor, wanting their will, pushing for their desires and their pleasures, this is what characterizes a church-going unbeliever. Church is loaded with terrors. The, the devil is planted in the next to the wheat, right? Now, we don't always know if they're true terrors or just very young Christians. There are carnal Christians. That's why Jesus said, don't try to uproot them, throw them out of the church. You don't know the heart. God does. If they profess to be Christians, but they're not living like they should be living, they might be young. They might need a little exhortation. Uh, they might need a spiritual kick in the pants. But they might be genuinely saved. However, they might also be phonies. Tares among the wheat. Now God knows. Here's the, here's the great thing about being a terror. Okay, put it that way. <laughs> you know what? Tares can become wheat. I have met people that have come into our church and didn't know them from Adam. They professed to be Christians, talked to them a little bit, and my spirit said, this, this person doesn't know the Lord. I just knew it. This happened more than once. I just, you know, the spirit bears witness with your spirit that we're children of God. Well, the spirit bears witness with you when you're talking to somebody and often will say, I don't think this person's saved. A few months passed. 
I caught this person again, started talking to them. The Spirit said to me, they have gotten saved. I could tell. I just knew it. So a terror can become wheat. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about those people right now who are churchgoers but unsaved. In essence, what Paul is talking about, what characterizes the lives of these people is not really a love for God, although they talk about loving God and I think they really feel they do love God in their own way. But what really characterizes their life is not a love for God, but a love for self, self-love. That's what self-seeking is rooted in. Self-seeking is rooted in self-love. It's a form of self-worship. When you worship God, he's your whole world. Everything revolves around him. When a person really is self-seeking and worships themselves, again, everything kind of revolves around them. They, they, they use God, give him lip service because they want to stay on his good side so that he can bless them when they ask him to and so on. But the general pattern of their life is not Christ-centered, it's self-centered. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, people in the church that manifest self-love, well, they've always been around, but it would really escalate in the last days. You all know it. I'll just read 2 Timothy 3, one, verses 1 and 2 out of the NLT. Talking to a young pastor, Paul writing to Timothy, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. Hello. And let me paraphrase. For people in the church will love phony Christians. You'll know them because they will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. Well, that's not to say he's not talking about the culture in general. But, but also, at, talking to a young pastor, they're going to start infiltrating into the church. And again, guys, this self-seeking could represent the qualities of a carnal Christian. And a lot of people who go to church and would hear me teach this, might jump to the assumption, well, I'm saved. I'm just, okay, I'm a little carnal because I know I'm not really living the way I should, but I really, I'm, I really think I'm okay with God. And you might be. Do you really want to chance that, though? That on the day of judgment, you stand before Jesus and hear him say, I never knew you, depart from me? Oh, but Lord, I went to church. I was involved in ministry. I even worked miracles in your name. I never knew you, depart from me. Guys, the idea is that if a person is truly saved but carnal or backslidden, yeah, they can manifest uh, an attitude that places themselves once again at the center of their lives. Okay. But you don't know if that's really what's going on. It could be your lifestyle is screaming to you that there's not real saving faith in your heart. And now is the time to examine yourself carefully, the Bible says, to make sure you're really in the faith. Because if you're not, now is the time to get right. Now is the time to get on your face before God, confess your sins, and really accept Christ as your Savior. Because again, if you wait till you die and you stand before him and you didn't know him, you can't say, well, Lord, can I get just a few minutes? I'll, I'll receive you now. Too late. It's too late. Now, of course, this leads to the second mark of a false believer they do not obey the truth, verse 8. Ultimately, the truth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you obey Jesus, I'm talking about the general pattern of your life, it indicates you know him, you belong to him. He said, my sheep, hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. The general pattern of a life of a believer is they we follow Jesus, not perfectly by any means, but that's the general pattern. We want to do what he, he says. We want to live like he lived. Anyone who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, John said in 1 John 2, is a liar. The truth is not in him or her. I know we're speaking pretty cut and dry. Sometimes we have to just cut it straight. You know, there's just no way around this. This is so important. Good heavens, I... I wouldn't want anybody on the day of judgment to look over at me as a pastor, their pastor. Is there in the line of people who thought they knew Christ 
but never really accepted him. And because I didn't want to offend people, because I wanted to placate, be a man pleaser, because after all, I like when people like me. I would never want to have somebody look over at me on the day of judgment and say, why didn't you tell me? You let me sit in your church week after week, and you made me feel like I was fine. Why didn't you tell me the hard stuff? Well, okay. Tonight we're dealing with some of the hard stuff. Whatever we say here tonight is in love, honestly. Speak the truth in love, right? But speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? So Jesus is ultimately the truth. Anyone who does not obey Jesus does not belong to Jesus. But then, of course, the truth is also the word of God, which is Jesus, but in print. In the beginning was the word, Jesus Christ. The word was with God, the word was God, and so on. Jesus said the night before he went to the cross, Father, sanctify them, my disciples, by your truth. Your word is truth. So obviously the word of God. Anyone who does not want to live according to God's word doesn't know God. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed, talking about unbelievers now, for well, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This is the characteristics of unbelievers. They live ungodly lives, unrighteous lives. Ungodliness and unrighteousness is uh, alluding to the two tablets of the law. The first four commandments are relationship with God. The last six are relationship to our fellow man. Ungodliness is you're not godly. You're not relating to God properly. Unrighteous, you're not relating to your fellow man properly. These are the qualities of unbelievers, what Paul is saying. But God reveals his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Who suppress the truth of God in their desire to live unrighteously. So Paul says, look, the marks of an unbeliever or a false believer, same thing, is that they may know the truth, but they don't really want to live the truth. And they suppress it or try to get around it. Now, this is going to reach its apex, its culmination, when the Antichrist shows up on the world scene. And again, I'll just read to you 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 12. You could turn there if you'd like. There has always been people, obviously, throughout history who may have known what God had said but didn't really want to live it. It's going to reach its apex or its zenith when the Antichrist comes. Because I believe, not to get off on a whole end times teaching, I believe the church is going to be raptured before the Antichrist rises to power. A lot of reasons I believe that. Taught, taught it, Revelation 4, get the tape, or get the tape, go online, get the tape. Uh, if you can find one, we don't have any, but you know. Um, but the church is out of here before the Antichrist makes his appearance. Immediately God, who never leaves himself without a witness, because all saved people are gone. <laughs> Rapture happens. There's not a believer left on the face of the earth. There's no witness. God is no witness. God never leaves himself without a witness. So what does he do? He immediately sends the two witnesses. Revelation 11. And they begin to work through the Holy Spirit that begins to save thousands and thousands. We know 144,000 Jews at least. But through their efforts and ministries, millions and millions of people. But as God's word now is being repopulated in, in the world, you know, through now a new group of believers, tribulation saints, the Antichrist is preaching his gospel. And a lot of people are gravitating to his gospel. He starts his own religion, a new religion, which people worship him, but I think at the heart of it is self-worship, where he's got it all figured out how that they can be gods. I'll show you how you can be gods. I've re reached godhood. I've ascended to godhood. Look at me. I've got power. I've got wisdom beyond your wildest dreams. I can teach you how to be gods. That resonates with people.
who already want to be God. So he's looking for a vehicle to get there. But listen, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless when the Antichrist is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. They would not receive the truth or obey it that they might be saved, verse 11, and for this reason God will send them strong delusion through the Antichrist and the devil that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So that whole mindset's going to reach its zenith uh, during the tribulation period. But this idea they did not believe the truth, embrace the truth, they didn't want to live the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the third thing. Paul lists here in verse 8. Unbelievers, those masquerading as true Christians, marks the marks of false believers. Number three, they obey unrighteousness. They obey unrighteousness. Look, there's no middle ground. There, there's no middle ground. Either you obey the truth or you obey unrighteousness. There's no middle ground. Jesus said, you were either for me or you're against me. And Joshua challenged the children of Israel back in Joshua 24 verse 15 choose for yourselves this day whom you are going to serve the gods of this world or the lord god almighty i know this as for me and my house we're going to serve the lord paul is telling us that these are the qualities the characteristics of unredeemed men and women which of course would include phony christians because there are unbelievers as well they think they're saved but the things that characterize these people self-seeking rooted in self-love, self-worship, disobedience to the truth of God as revealed in his word, and the open flaunting of sin. The farther a, a person or a people moves away from God, the more brazen they get with regard to their sin. It's interesting the days we're living in today, how sin has come out of the closet and is now parading in the streets. God told Israel at one point, because of what they were doing, they had degraded into such extent where the most incredibly heinous sins they were just practicing out in the open. And God indicted them with many words, but he said at one point, you weren't even ashamed, nor did you even blush. Their sin had gotten so brazen. They got so used to it. So guys, the marks of, an unbeliever, uh, marks of unbelievers are exactly opposite of those of a spirit-filled believer in Christ. And when talking about the phony, counterfeit Christian churchgoers, as compared with a true believer in Christ, it's the difference between the broad way and the narrow way, right? Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where he laid out the two ways. And by the way, there's only two ways. There's the right way and the wrong way. The wrong way happens to be very broad, called the broad way, very tolerant, very accepting of whatever you want to believe. Hey, man, I'm not going to judge you. Don't judge me. Let's all just groove together and just all get along. And, you know, whatever you want to do, it's okay with me as long as it feels good for you. Great. That's the broad way. That's the way of religion. Then you have the narrow way. That's the way of the cross. It's Jesus. He's the way. But, of course, he said, many go down the broad way. Why? Because the narrow way is hidden? No, because it's not a pleasant road to walk. Count the cost before you take up your cross and follow me. Count the cost. Why is that? If somebody said, guys, salvation is free, just receive Christ. Salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything in this life to follow Jesus. That's something that a lot of people don't realize when they hear an emotional sermon and the pastor says, come on up here if you want to accept Christ, and they run up gushing with emotion, and they pray to receive Christ, but really it was all emotional. It was not rooted in true brokenness, surrender, repentance, and so on. So they look good for a little while, but they're shallow. Their roots don't go deep really into the faith. They're not really believers. So a little adversity arises because of the word. Their so-called faith withers and dies and they're back in the world because they were always of the world. The difference between the broad way and the narrow way. All right, guys, that brings us to the fifth principle of coming judgment that Paul gives in the first 16 verses of Romans 2. 
he mentions impartiality. Verse 6, who will render, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Guys, when God judges, and these overlap a little bit, so bear with me. When God judges, he doesn't look at the person. He judges on the basis of their deeds, whether they obeyed him or not. That's the truest test of saving faith is in a person's heart. What works its way out, obedience or no obedience? The issue is not whether a person is rich or poor, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they are religious or non-religious, whether they are man or woman, educated or uneducated, famous or unknown. God will judge them with total impartiality. He's no respecter of persons. He will judge them with total impartiality on the basis of whether they live their life in obedience to his word or not, indicating, as I said, whether there was true saving faith in their heart. Now, God sees the heart. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I know it. God says, I test the hearts, search the minds. God knows the heart. But he wants us to know. That's why he tells us he's going to judge based on the works. Because anybody can profess to know Jesus. You know how many people in our country profess to be Christians? Well, how do we know if there's really saving faith in their heart? By how they live their lives. I mean, does obedience to God's word really characterize their lives in general? Or is it just like any un other unbeliever living in their life? You know, God called his earthly, this idea of God judging impartially, right? Impartially. You know, God called his earthly judges in the Old Testament Elohim. It's interesting. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Why would God call earthly judges gods? Because as the supreme judge of all creation, he has raised up in the Old Testament men to be judges, to sit in his place, and judge over people's lives. Sometimes that judgment was in regards to capital punishment, where the judge literally held the life of this person in their hands. Because they were representing God, and God is the only one who has the right to condemn and take somebody's life off the earth, and he, he has delegated that authority to earthly judges, he tells them, you represent me, even calls them gods. But you better do it the way I have done it myself, with total impartiality and justice. That's the idea. God demanded the same impartiality from them when they judged. Let me just read these to you. You can write them down. Leviticus 19, verse 15. Now God is talking to the judges of Israel. He said, you shall, shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. In other words, you are to judge according to the law, period. In fact, I think, and I know it's somewhere, I couldn't find it. Some place in the Old Testament where God, Deuteronomy or something like that, where God says, the courtroom is not a place for mercy. It's a place for justice. Isn't that interesting? Wow. The merciful God of all the universe. But when you judge, you ju earthly judges. You're not to show partiality. You're not to feel sorry for someone because they're poor. Give them a break. You're not to be overly harsh on those who are rich or lenient. You are to judge according to my law. Deuteronomy 16, verses 19 to 20. You shall, judges, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The implication is 
if you don't judge righteously and start giving breaks to people and taking bribes, society begins to break down. You won't have anything to pass on to your children. That's what God's saying. Proverbs 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. And I'll give you one more. John 12, 48. Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last days. In the last day. Again, the idea is God doesn't judge with partiality. God judges impartially. He's going to judge each person by his law, whether they violate it or not. Guys, listen. When a nation is starting to decline, one of the things that begins to break down pretty quickly is its judicial system. Justice is corrupted, and as a result, society breaks down and crumbles. That's a sign of judgment. We're seeing it in our own country. It's hard to watch. I know. Being a pastor for over 40 years, I know when the Antichrist comes, he's going to unite the world in a one-world government. I know if that's going to happen, and it will, I know that for that to happen, America's got to be out of the picture. We're too independent. We are too strong as a nation in our beliefs that America is exceptional. It was a God-ordained experiment. America has to be out of the picture for the Antichrist to arise and unite the whole world under a one-world government, probably with a single flag, and so on. I know it has to happen. And I've been teaching it for over 40 years, but now as I'm watching it happen, it's hard to deal with. You lay awake at night. God, I don't even know what to pray for. Please be merciful. Please, Lord. We deserve judgment. I know that. But we're asking for mercy and not justice. Huh, isn't that interesting? Appealing to the God of the universe, the judge of all the earth, begging for mercy. That's all right. He doesn't have to show it, but he might. As one of the prophets says, Lord, one of the prophets said, Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. You might judge us, Lord, but please be merciful. Don't judge us as we deserve. Please, Lord. Judge us enough where people are shaken to their core, their eyes are opened, they fall on their faces, receiving Christ as their Savior. Please, Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. The phrase, no partiality, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. This is interesting. The phrase, no partiality, or as the King James Version translates it, no respect of persons, is one word in the Greek, a compound word. It's a combination of the word for face, human face, and the verb to receive. So the phrase, no partiality, literally means that with God, he doesn't receive your face. What does that mean? Well, in other words, he doesn't judge by appearance. He looks deeper. It reminds us of what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? At the heart. In other words, God doesn't judge superficially and with partiality. He always judges fairly and righteously. We get a glimpse of the final judgment of all unbelievers in Revelation 20, if you turn there. It's a judgment called the great white throne judgment. And I'm just going to read verse 12, where John sees this last great final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And he describes what he sees. He said, and I saw the dead. These are all unbelievers who had died in Hades and now they are resurrected to stand before the Lord for the final judgment. They're all going to hell. They're all going to be cast in the lake of fire. 
But right now, the degree of punishment they will endure in hell is what's going to be determined. They don't get to plead their case. The case has already been decided. They're guilty. So I saw the, the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And we have studied this before. One of the books is the word of God. We know that from what Jesus said in John 12, 48. He who does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him or her on the last day. So one of the books is the word of God, God's righteous standard, which they refuse to obey. When John says, I saw the small and the great standing before Jesus, he's not referring to their physical stature. It's not like he's saying, I saw the tall and the small, the big and the shorties, you know? What he's talking about when he says small and great was their supposed importance upon the earth in their life. So here we see a picture of Judgment Day where the small, the slave, the poor, the insignificant, the unimportant, are standing next to the great, the kings and presidents, senators and CEOs, the rich and the famous. This group will include the atheists and all the so-called intellectuals, all the college professors that thought they were too smart to believe in God, not the God of the Bible. That's for simpletons and unenlightened folks. This group is going to include the atheists and so-called intellectuals, who mock the existence of God. All the late-night comedians, hopefully they'll get saved. Those who were too cool for God and made fun out of those who were stupid enough to believe in Him. Guys, this group will consist of all the rebels who have ever lived on the face of the earth, who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus as their king. All the William Henleys. Remember his poem Invictus? All the Henleys who shook their fists in the face of a holy God and cried out, it matters not how straight the gate, nor how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And by the way, that was Tim Bay's final words before he was executed for his part in the Oklahoma City bombing back in 95. A rebel to the end. He could have received Christ and been forgiven. He could have went to heaven when he was executed as a child of God. No, a rebel to the end. And this is going to be the case with everybody who ever lived whose life song was, I did it my way, in defiance of God. And so on Judgment Day, there will be assembled before Jesus' great white throne all the so-called somebodies and all the lowly nobodies, the irreligious and the very religious, all standing before the judge of all creation, all standing on equal ground, and all bound together by their mutual, willful unbelief and rebellion. These are those who rejected the love of the truth, the gospel, which would have saved them from this terrifying day. And now they stand before the one who loved them and gave himself for them, whom they rejected as their loving Savior on the earth. And now they stand before him, and he becomes their righteous judge. And remember that God is no respecter of persons. He isn't impressed by fame and wealth, by positions of power, as with kings and presidents. All will be judged fairly, impartially, and righteously. And guys, God knows everything about everyone. Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. Acts 10.34, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Galatians 2, verse 6, Paul said, from, But from those who seem to be somebodies, whatever they were makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. Ephesians 6, verse 9, You earthly masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening your slaves, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3, verse 25, 
but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Give you one more. First Peter 1 verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay on the earth with fear. Guys, all of these verses say exactly what Paul said in Romans 2 verse 11. Same thing. Now listen to me. Some may be prone, as you read these words, some might be prone to think that this means that God is going to judge everyone the same. The same. But actually what it says is that God will be absolutely fair. That's the idea. Not that everyone will receive the same rewards or the same punishments. Well, we know the Bible teaches that there are different degrees of reward in heaven. Check out 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15. And it teaches there will be various degrees of punishment in hell. Check out Luke 12, verses 47 to 48. So guys, the idea behind the statement that there is no partiality with God is the fact that, first of all, he doesn't favor certain people over others. And secondly, he deals fairly with all people according to the light, the knowledge each of them had. That's what we're going for. That's what we're keying in on. Those two things. You see, Paul anticipated the question. Are you saying then that God judges everyone the same? No. How do I know that? By what he goes on to say starting in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. In other words, there is no partiality with God. He, and he is absolutely righteous, fair, when he judges. Guys, if a person had the law of God, his written law given to Israel through Moses, they will be judged by God's written law. And if they didn't have the written law of God, they will be judged without the law. And of course, by saying this, Paul is making a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews having the written law of God and the Gentiles who did not. It's important that we understand that the basic idea of the verse is that in the final eternal judgment of God, he will show equity and impartiality by dealing with people according, listen, to the light each possessed. Those who had the Bible, which we have talked about being God's special revelation. There's two revelations of God in the universe. There is natural revelation, the creation. And then there is special revelation, the Bible, the Word of God. Those that had access to God's special revelation, his word, will be judged by the word of God. But those who didn't have the Bible will be judged without it. Now, you, right? now you're thinking, well, yes, but how can God judge the Gentiles when he didn't give them his divine laws, his word, as he did the Jewish people? Well, hold on to that. Uh, Paul's going to deal with that in a minute. But first of all, let me just say this to you. You need to understand uh, the Jews saw themselves as special to God because he did give them his law. He did entrust them with his word. I mean, they guarded it, they copied it, they preserved it down through the centuries for future generations of their descendants to have and read and obey. So because of that, they were under the impression, the feeling that because God entrusted us with his truth, certainly we should have the higher honor and not the greater condemnation. So Paul, talk about the Gentiles all you want, how they're pagans, how they deserve to be judged. We say amen. But we're special. Don't you dare lump us in with those pagans. Remember chapter 1? Now he moves into the moralist and the religionist, primarily the Jew, in chapter 2. And I can imagine some of the Jew, his Jewish um, audience was very indignant about this. Listen, we're not perfect. We acknowledge that. But God chose us. 
as his own special people and gave us his laws. And we believe that should cause us to have greater honor, not condemnation, not hell. Almost, they thought they were kind of exempt from judgment in hell. It was for the Gentiles, whom God only made to fuel the fires of hell, but not the Jews. We're special. God will keep us from that final judgment. Well, here's the problem with that, though. Yes, God gave them his law, his word, but then Paul nails it in verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Oh, wait a minute. Just because you had God's or have God's law doesn't mean that automatically saves you. The word for hearers here is not the usual Greek word akuo for hearing something. It's the word akrotes, akrotes, a word that was used of pupils who constantly hear something taught. And guys, that's exactly what the Jews did in the synagogues every week. And what so many churchgoers do in churches each week, they hear the word of God over and over and over again, but they don't do anything with it. They never obey it. They think that because they hear it, that's all they need. Let me read to you James. You know where I'm going, right? James 1, I'll read it to you out of the NLT. I want to read verses 21 to 25. Where James says, So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and, humble, and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forgot what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, God's perfect word, if you look carefully into the perfect law of God uh, that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for keeping his word. Look, a person can come to church every week, every day, and hear the word of God being taught. But it's only going to bless them if they obey what it says. The idea that just because I come to church and hear the word, that's all I really need. That's all God really wants. I'm hearing the word. No, actually, God wants you to hear so you can obey. The whole point of learning is living. Otherwise, it's worthless. I mean, unless you hear God's word taught and desire to apply it, obey it, well, it will only bless your life as long as you do it, as long as you keep it, especially the gospel. But unbeliever who comes to church and hears the gospel and doesn't accept Christ, that, that's the ultimate foolishness. Guys, if a person only hears the word but doesn't really intend to obey it, not only is it not good, it's really bad. It's really bad. In what way? Well, it's going to lead to greater chastening on earth if the person's truly saved and greater condemnation in hell if they're not. Because with knowledge comes responsibility. With the truth of God is light. You can't plead ignorance anymore. Now you know what God has said. What are you going to do about it? You, you can't say uh, to the Lord on the day of judgment, I never heard. And even that won't work as we're going to see. But especially if a person has come to church and listens to the word taught, listens to it, and even nods their head. They're agreeing with it. But they walk out those doors and do nothing with it. Thinking, okay, I did that. I'm good for the week. I did my obligation. I'm on good, God's good side now. No, you're fooling yourself. And again, some would say at this point, if a person didn't have the law of God, how can God possibly condemn them for not obeying it? Logical. Paul anticipates that question. The question, what about the pagan who never heard the gospel? We hear this today. Well, what about the you know, native in Africa, in the way in the farthest reaches, or the aborigine in the farthest place of Australia? 
What about the pagan who has never heard the gospel, who never read the scriptures? How can God hold them responsible for not doing it? Listen, guys, and we'll end with this. Set it up for next week. God will never judge a person for what they didn't know. He will only judge them for what they do know. He will only judge them according to the light that they have. Here's the thing. As we're going to see next time, God has given this world and everyone in it sufficient light to be saved. They have no excuse. We'll talk about this next time, God willing. Because this is important. You know, I mean, even as believers, sometimes unbelievers will hit you with how unfair God is. As we said a couple weeks ago, there's a lot of people who really, it's not that they have trouble believing God is so good because of all the evil. It's that they actually think God is evil because of all that's going around in the world. You're shocked maybe at that statement. A lot of unbelievers, they don't wrestle with how can a God who is good allow everything like this to happen? They look at all the evil in the world and say, God must be evil himself. But here's the thing. God has given this world and the people in it enough light to be saved if they live up to the light he's given. If they live up to the light, he will give more light. Enough to be saved. If they don't, live up to the light that he's given them it ends right there that's why jesus said now in with this luke i forgot exactly where take heed how you hear because not everybody who hears my word hears it with the right heart a lot of folks are listening but they're not taking it in we could say they're hearing but they're not really listening a lot of folks from the church hear the word of God. But they don't really listen to what God is saying. They don't really apply it in their lives. And they're the ones going to be shocked on the day of judgment. Because he's going to say to them, I never knew you. So hold on to that. We'll pick it up in verse 14 next time, God willing. And continue through this incredible epistle. It has so much to teach us. Father, we thank you for your word. Give us grace, Lord, to have a voracious hunger for your word. Especially in these last days, we need to know, to, know the, to know the truth better and more than we ever have. The days are getting very, very dark and wicked and demonic. And the only thing that can pierce the darkness is the light of your truth. Give us grace to know it, to embrace it, to love it, and to live it. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.